Hello everyone, welcome to another festive edition of the Squiggly Animation Podcast, and in this episode we talk to some of the people behind the animated Christmas specials, Snowy Day, Revolting Rhymes, and We're Going on a Bear Hunt. So here we are again for a special seasonal Squiggly Podcast. I'm Ben Mitchell. Joined by Steve Henderson and Laura Beth Cowley. Hello, everyone. Hello. Ho, ho, hello. And what an animated holiday season we have coming up. Specials and all sorts of lovely things. What are you looking forward to the most this holiday season? Who are you asking? And whoever wishes to go first. I like this. I feel like I'm chairing a round table. Ladies first. Revolting Rhymes. Now, Revolting Rhymes, it's another uh, Magic Light adaptation. And uh, they have a pretty good track record as far as getting these books uh, translated to animation. What about yourself, Steve? I'm looking forward to Bear Hunt, seeing how that's uh, how that goes ahead. It looks really nice, and it's been a fantastic year for Lupus, putting together Ethel and Ernest and all that kind of stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing that on uh, the TV screen. Um, but uh, Bear Hunt looks, looks pretty lovely. And uh, I'll go with the Amazon one, because it would be kind of a d- move if we didn't... <laughs> Uh, and it is lovely. There's uh, the new carrot animation special, uh, A Snowy Day, another children's book adaptation. So yeah, children's books, always a fantastic source to mine for animated Christmas specials. Who'd have thought? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I thought you'd have just gone for the Snowy Day one because you're a massive Boys to Men fan. Oh, is that uh, what that was all about? You, you didn't instantly recognise the smooth tones of Boys to Men. Unbelievable. I know. I need to hand in my Boys to Men... <laughs> Fan club president card. I oh, guess I'm I, sure who they are. You'll be you'll be richer for not having the knowledge in your head. Were they something in the nineties? They were once in an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, I think. That is that's oh, how wow. you play some contextually. That would be the nineties, yeah. Uh, well, this is uh, from Carrot Animation. They did well. They do Sarah and Duck, which is a great children's preschool export. This is uh, an adaptation of, I believe, it's an American story originally the yeah it's uh ezra jack keats uh very popular american uh children's book i suppose it's perhaps the equivalent to uh the mr men books over here or uh the snowman or something like that we all have our our children's books that we we love in this country but uh in america this is a this is a huge book uh, for them so it's quite a, a coup for for our friends at carrot animation to be able to translate this and uh, for, for the children to enjoy, have been enjoying the book for many years. I'm really surprised that an English company was able to get the rights to it because I would have thought they would have insisted on an American company because it is such a mm. an American classic. The cover is sort of shown in illustration exhibitions everywhere when they're having like an American retrospective on children's illustration because it's one of the really iconic ones. It's definitely a very recognisable image. Mm-hmm. It goes back to like the early 60s, I guess, this book came out originally. So it's a pretty big ask, I guess, to adapt it to animation. But at least they kept to the, like the two D style and didn't try to represent it in another way. Like at least they didn't try to like CG it. It's such a it's such a good thing for for Carrot to be able to do as well. I mean, it is a very American tale, and watching it, it, it there's nothing uh, that gives it away that it was actually made in the UK. So that's obviously one of the beauties of animation is that it's universal. You can do it anywhere and it can be translated beautifully. So they've kept a good handle on it. And there's no like 
red pillar boxes or people that driving on the wrong side of the road or any of that kind of stuff. Now, Jamie Badminton is the co-director of this. He is actually, I think, prior to this, mainly a producer, right? That's right. That was my understanding. So this is first time up to bat as a director? Well, for a long time, yeah. Okay, so he'd done it a little before. Yeah, he spent ages kind of growing Carrot. And then obviously they got Sarah and Duck, which was a huge, uh, huge thing for them. And he spent absolute years. I mean, we've known Jamie for years, haven't we? Um, all of us. And, and he's just spent years spinning plates as a producer and, and, and getting Carrot to where it is now. Uh, is it about, it's about four years since Sarah and Duck premiered, hasn't it? Yeah, my uh, my little niece, who's probably its biggest fan, was not even a, a glint in her father's eye. As the expression goes, I've always hated that expression. I'm not entirely sure why I brought it out. Um, but yeah, I was, talking, I was saying with James, like, it's crazy because when we first met you guys and she didn't even exist and now she's like, you know, completely enraptured by this world. So it's nice to kind of see something appear and then grow into something uh, that has a real place in the popular. And also because it's, they're based in Canada, it's made it over there. Mm. Like a lot of like other parents and stuff, like are really big fans of the show and stuff like that. It certainly has a lot of reach. And I was reminded, as, as perhaps you were as well, that way back in the day before it even uh, debuted, we had Sarah do a little illustration for us. Yeah. Before it was even like a thing for one of our advent calendars. So that's, that's nice. It feels nice to have been, you know, observing these kind of things. So, yeah, it's great to see character go from strength to strength. Mm. Now, this is this being broadcast or is it exclusive to Amazon? It, I think it's exclusive to Amazon, which is quite a, quite a new thing, really, to have this, uh, this, plat- this brand new platform. Everyone obviously gathers around the television on, on Christmas Day, but I'm sure people will be getting tablets and phones and gadgets where they can watch Amazon Prime or... Uh, whatever it is that you need to watch this uh, this short, but uh, hopefully, you know, the family will gather around their smart TVs and, and give the show a give the show a watch. Be a new Christmas tradition: gather around the the tablet, <laughs> and we'll tell you a tale. Yeah, gather around the tablet with your mac and cheese. We have to gather around the tablet because we've got the fire burning on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the TV's got the Netflix fireplace, so the tablet will have the Amazon Christmas special. So yes, all sorts of entertainment <laughs> options available. You can have uh, you can have a Snowy Christmas a musette fire. playing on the phone as well, just to oh. fully round it out. So uh, from Snowy Day, the Christmas special, uh, we have director Jamie Badminton, who's here to talk a little bit more about how it all came to be. Let's hear from Jamie, shall we? You've been working on interstitials, commercials, series such as Sarah and Doug, which uh, is fantastic work. But you've now produced a 38-minute Christmas special, which you've directed alongside Rufus Blacklock called Snowy Day. To American listeners, the Snowy Day is probably something that everyone's grown up with. But for the UK audience, I don't think it's as popular as, say, The Snowman or something that we have as a sort of British institution. Could you tell us a little bit about how this project arrived at Carrot? The Snow Day book is a massive institution in America. Um, not so well known over here at all, but it really it was one of the first books in 19... It was the first book in 1962 to feature an African... A picture book to feature an Af- African-American lead character. Um, it follows the story of Peter in, uh, wearing his bright red sort of uh, anorak and snowsuit 
playing in the snow uh, and, and having a day where you just explored everything the snow has to offer. It's, it was just such a simple, sweet story that resonated with, with all audiences um, and still endures now. You know, the book is 54 years old. It's actually Ezra Jack Keats' centenary year this year. So what a wonderful chance to have. It's the first time it's really been brought to life um, in an extensive adaptation. Um, uh, but being quite a simple picture book, it needed to be expanded in a way that was very sensitive to to the source material without losing the essence of the book. We, I'm very pleased to say that we were able to keep nearly every page of the book within the 38-minute adaptation woven into the story. The story was written by Anne Austin, Anne Sherman, and Deborah Pope, um, who also executive produced the special. And they, they came to us with an amazing 35-page script that expanded on expanded on the world of Peter, his journey, he now goes to his nana's to, to pick up food uh, for the Christmas Eve celebrations. Uh, but all of the snowy day exploring elements from the book, all in there on the way. Uh, plus a really wide-ranging cast of characters. The diversity in the show is really strong and important, I think, because Keats made such a statement with this first book, with the, with his, with his with the snowy day. Um, it wasn't his first book, but his greatest success to that point. Um, because because of the, the how much the story of the of a little African American boy playing in the snow resonated. The iconic nature of the book was really important to to save, but also um, still be as as inclusive and as as open as possible in 2016. That's that it, it feels like a really important time for this for this for this adaptation and and the responses we've had to it so far. It's already on Amazon Prime, so it's up there right now uh, 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 as a as a 38 minute film and responses to people who grew up with the book have been really humbling because you we the last thing we wanted to do was damage those memories uh, uh um but we've even had people say that, that it's it's strengthened them which is uh, because the story has been has been woven in so nicely and, and that, that yeah that was that was there in the script when we got it but it was a big responsibility of mine and rufus's not to not to mess that up uh so very pleased that people have responded you get to put a little bit more in with animation, don't you, as opposed to a storybook. It's a different experience for the person consuming that particular media. Well, gosh, there's suddenly a voice, isn't there, uh, um, as well, to start with. You, you make up voices in your head when it's a picture book. Reading it day after day is largely the voice of maybe your parents reading it to you. So to have to cast the characters um, was, was quite the pressure as well, having to speak for the first time. Um, Peter's played by an amazing kid called Donnell Hansley. And um, uh, he's 12, he was 12 when we finished, when we... we and he, but he sounded that a bit younger, which uh, made the character of Peter. He's about he's about seven-ish, I would say, probably. So charming. And we had a we had Regina King to play his mum, Angela Bassett as his nana, um, and then it was narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. Um, so we had an amazing caliber of cast com coming 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 on board that helped make that a very smooth transition, actually. Uh, so we didn't have to worry too much about that, but. Also, yeah, with the power of, we, got, we had to make sure we got the pace right. We had to make sure that uh, it didn't feel too rushed through at the same time. We gave each iconic moment its breathing space uh, and, and, and then added any new storylines in there in a way that didn't encroach on those moments, but, but enhanced them. And I think uh, the, the power of adding music to that and all elements of, 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 of filmmaking, uh, every, every, every bit has to be as pitch perfect as you can to serve the memory of the book. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree you, with that. You mentioned music there as well. You've got Boys to Men 
to, to boys, boys to know, and it, it was really exciting, sort of uh, chatting to them and, and, and on Skype at four in the morning because obviously working with with America, some of the time differences were were that was probably the latest we ever worked, <laughs> but. They, they were such great guys, and they wrote an original song for the special, uh, as well as have have a, have a few small acting parts in it as well. That um, they play some acapella singers on the street, and who are woven all the way through the story, uh, which really tie Peter's journey together using music too. So you that um, they play a real uh, uh, crucial part of Peter's of Peter's journey that day, um, making it feel like there's an arc to the special um uh but yeah getting to work with some real the real legends uh and and it's a beautiful original song um called the snowy day uh um and and that gets sort of unveiled as as they come together as a trio all the way through the special so yeah it's never a normal day in the office when you look at your calendar and it says 4am <laughs> meet boys to men <laughs> we started at about eight that evening but we recorded the song and all of the dialogue in the same day um so I, I was always online via skype as the as, as the guys in the studio at studiopolis and in, in america uh um in, in la put uh, put it together so uh yeah working with amazon and the the caliber of people they've attracted to this property but uh, and the book obviously played a massive part in that because everyone already knew the title which was a, a real bonus in a project like this uh, uh, getting some great names attached so how did you kind of handle this 35 minute long pro is it 35 hang on is it 36 it's 38 actually 38. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing you short by cutting off three minutes there <laughs> yes. Jamie how, <laughs> how did you the fabulous thing about all of, the fabulous thing about working with Amazon is it sort of ended up being able to be as long as we wanted it to be um we were planning for 35 we just felt that extra breathing space was needed as we were going so we it sort of just gently evolved to have as long as the story needed which is which is amazing but yeah it's three times longer than anything we've ever done as a studio so there was a massive learning curve there we had a sort of not 10 10 month production schedule on it which is which is pretty far from doing sort of half a feature film's worth of footage especially as that story needs to all hang together so yeah a definite definite challenge for us but um the the graphic style of the of the special really spoke to us uh when we first approached it. everyone in the studio was excited about it which is half the battle going in um uh we we just we just had we basically sort of extended the time we had to storyboard it by uh, the using the sort of a starting point with the quotas that we used for Sarah and Doug, uh, scaling them up. Of course, some of those, that works fine in some cases. In other cases, um, I'd say in other cases, they weren't so accurate. So, you know, you, as, from a pipeline, it was very evolving as we went along um, in order to work with all our with all our partners in, in America, uh, um, going back and forth for, for feedback to, to improve it and make it stronger as we go along. Um, it, was, it was a different experience to making a seven-minute short uh, and then making another seven minute short and making another seven minute short as the as the pipeline for Sarah and Doc works. So, um, loads of fresh challenges uh, in order to and, and 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 we had to ensure that the consistency throughout the backgrounds uh, channeled Ezra's with spirit certainly and 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 felt balanced and consistent over that period of time. We were using for the for the animation on the project. We were using cell action, uh, and it was a really interesting way of using cell action because the characters don't have lines which was ace because we were really able to push the skeletons around quite a lot or create the illusion of very 
very naturalistic human movement. These characters are in set in Brooklyn, so we had to make them feel like like humans, maybe more than the the stylized proportions of Sarah and Duck uh, um, require, because the proportions of the characters are, are, are very are very realistic, um, and the fact there was no line work really enabled us to hide a lot of joins within the characters and produce something in cell action that we really believe sort of pushes the boundaries of it um uh there was a lot of uh dynamic uh edges to the characters so that so that we could change the silhouette to make it as pleasing as possible mm-hmm. as, we, as we worked um it so it enabled us to use cell action in a whole new way um prog- uh, uh, which which also had production challenges you know that we uh, we ended up having about 20 25 characters or so in there as well by the time we had different costumes which which was a lot to produce in a short period of time uh to get to the deadline of the production for example on a series maybe you introduce a new character every couple of episodes uh but in this all of them had to be in ready for the final delivery de- uh, deadline for the special uh so the pipeline demands was were were different but a fresh challenge and and one that I think the team both do really well, so it couldn't be more proud of of how uh, they responded to that change in, in demands of, of, of producing a special. It, it was it's definitely far beyond anything we'd done before of having all our departments connect up with each other. But the great thing about being able to produce it in house in London is that everyone was in the same room, so we could try and uh, keep the connectivity between departments if a new challenge rose up and uh, yeah that's that's the beauty of of being able to have people working closely together um it, it shows up on screen uh especially when deadlines are tight mm-hmm. you get to yell across the room <laughs> something like that yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah the animation is is really nice and fluid and uh, it, as soon as peter puts his face up against the window you know what you're in for you know you're in for a very well animated show so uh, oh, there. Uh, but this was uh, something that you'd not done in, in, in quite a while, keeping Carrot, uh, you know, keeping the fire stoked at Carrot with uh, with your pro- uh, role as a, as a producer uh, and, and doing creative bits and bobs. Uh, you find yourself directing uh, alongside Rufus Blacklock. How, how was that experience? It was great. It really was a change of pace for me because I've been so closely producing Sarah and Duck. Um, for that period of time, as I still am. Uh, and I've always been sort of a creative director, sort of quality, almost quality control, <laughs> to put it in its bluntest sense. But, you know, making sure that everything that goes out the door fills up to the quality we're striving for. Um, but in this case, yeah, getting to, getting to direct and, and steer the production was great for me to stay in touch with the process. You know, uh, after, when we, the larger you get as a company, the, uh, the more going on's, it's vital I don't lose touch with that. So getting the chance to to steer the project and know the realities of every decision that you make and how important it is to make that decision fast and confidently um, was was a terrific experience uh, to see Sarah and Doc almost from the other angle, if that makes sense. Because producing and directing are very different disciplines, but because sometimes they can counteract each other. You know, you want if I, I wish I had more time for this. If you're if when you're producing as well, sometimes you say, okay, well, have that. <laughs> but it has ramifications later. So, producing and directing, definitely, I had to make sure ultimately we got to the end point. That was always my goal of making sure that we delivered on time, and and every decision had both those 
both those factors attached, I guess. Uh, are we are we making the highest quality thing we can? And are we going to get done fast enough? Uh, interesting dynamic that, and uh, uh, it's been a it's been a really enjoyable year from that perspective. Uh, knowing that we got to the, the end point as we planned to, so yeah, really good. <laughs> Excellent. Feels like you're in two minds, almost schizophrenic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, great. You know, I was directing with Rufus um, Blacklock and and producing with Tom Jordan, so there was always someone to bounce that off, and that was fantastic. If I'd have been doing both completely by myself, uh, um, then that would have been harder to reconcile, I think. But uh, um, we were able to have very separate conversations about about schedule and about creativity, um, and and, keep, but, but, and then I was and then joining them both together, um, which is vital for any production. <laughs> Uh, how were, how was Amazon as a as a boss? I, I've never really spoken to anyone who's had the experience working for a different platform to television. So, how was that? Amazon are being so bold and creative in what they're approaching at the moment. They they're going for really strong visual styles, really bold storytelling, and trying to do something that helps that helps them stand out. There, you know, they're a new player in the in the um in the broadcasting landscape relatively but after the success of shows like Tumbleleaf um, that was a stop motion show that's beautifully distinctive um, that confidence that's building uh, within the team there uh, within that confidence they passed to us uh, to, with with such a distinctive project that they came to us with um, it's, it's been a joy so far um, there's yeah we work directly with them so we haven't got lots of other broadcast partners involved so it's a very close relationship and and the, the guys there are so passionate about what they do uh which tallies with what we do so we found it a terrific a terrific partnership so far and um i think the slate of shows they're developing uh and the stuff they have in the pipeline really speaks to that dedication and and, and they're taking their chance. They've got the chance there to do something brand new. It doesn't necessarily have to be broadcast in specific slots on TV. People discover it when they discover it from episode one onwards. Um, it's a lovely, I think it's quite a freeing place to tell stories from a storytelling perspective. You know, uh, there's lots of shows coming out where you can start at episode one and everyone will always be able to start at episode one. That's a lovely thing from a storytelling perspective. Um, and this special hopefully will be you know, there for people to to check in with every year as a bit of a holiday tradition all these people saying that they in the reviews they hope to they watch it every year and and it'll be there for them to do that um you know on demand and 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 that's a it's, a it's sort of a new a new way of content being in people's lives that's quite an exciting thing to be on sort of the forefront of and being involved with so. as traditional as mac and cheese on christmas day <laughs> She does play a big part in this story, for sure. Uh, um, it's the driving force of Peter's day, uh, and we, I, I, I'd never actually really had it <laughs> until until we had some of our, our, our screening party and our wrap party. And it was absolutely delicious. Uh, uh, so I, I, I maybe now uh, have even more of an affinity with with Peter in the story than I did when we started. <laughs> Method animating, you have to get into the yeah, characters, uh, eat what they eat. Yeah, if we've had it at the start of production, it, yeah, uh, uh, that would have been even 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 more method, but uh, we'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Jamie Badminton, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Absolute pleasure. Great to speak to you. Cheers, Steve. Thanks to Jamie Badminton from Snowy Day 
And you can check that out on Amazon Prime. You certainly can. But that isn't the only animated holiday special we've got a-coming, as we uh, indicated at the beginning of the episode. There are a couple more. Well, there's a few. I mean, lots of series are doing their Christmas specials, of course. Um, I think with this kind of thing, it's nicer to focus on the uh, the one-offs. And one very anticipated one-off Christmas special is an adaptation of an old Michael Rosen book called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Did you read this when you were a kid, Ben? Is it? Was it? How old is it? On oh, 1993, you'd have been 10. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know you were pretty advanced as a kid, so I, I, I doubt you would have... Uh... I was reading really shitty books at 10. I was reading, like, Goosebumps for that point. Oh. I started off really classy. I had pretty good taste in it as a teenager, and now it's shitty again as a 30-something-year-old. <laughs> but I was familiar with his, his earlier work. The one I remember really liking as a kid... It was one of the ones with uh, Quentin Blake did the illustrations. Mm. So I think it kind of rode the crest of my Roald Dahl love as a kid. Uh, was called Don't Put Mustard in the Custard, <laughs> which I believe was a poetry collection. I might be wrong. I'm just going through his bibliography and that cover came up and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that one. One weird kind of animation connection that he has, a uh, buddy of mine who's been on Squiggly, did an film called Henry. Um, a guy called Sam Morrison, and Michael Rosen narrated it. And I didn't see this film at the time, but years later, like maybe 10 years later, Sam did this other film called Greetings, which I think is online somewhere. We showed it at one of our earlier squiggly screenings as a really, really funny film with the same character from his student film. And Michael Rosen narrated that as well. It was quite a nice... I think maybe it was the RCA that kind of like helped get him for the original student film. Mm. But it was quite nice that he came back 10 years later after Sam had become quite established. He'd done some stuff, I think, for Arben at that point, And he was... Oh, he was the Arben erectile dysfunction guy. Who, Michael Rosen? No. <laughs> uh, Sam. He did yeah, those yeah. Films. You might need to put a bit of context into that sentence, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about it in Intimate Animation. Yeah. We, yeah. It's very similar to the, the RCA... Well, his general style. Um, it's about a guy who can't get it up and it's you know about um advice in that situation uh that admin i believe produced and this guy directed so prior to this you know that's the main animation connection i kind of have in my head as far as michael rosen goes well i assume that we're going on a bear hunt was from the era of his books where he wrote quite a lot about like he's in a lot of his books but also his children are in a lot of his books and michael rosen's probably most popularly known for his sad book which is about him dealing with grief after his son died completely by accident in the night pretty heavy subject matter but actually kind of regarded as a general audience read like something kids could actually read well there's quite a lot of children's books that deal with sensitive subjects like mental health and grief and stuff um i i knew his book because i wrote an essay in like my first year at university about dealing with grief in children's books so i wrote about this and oh what's his name the guy that did grandpa do you remember that so i i wrote an essay about like grief in children's books and it was comparing something like sad book and grandpa that doesn't directly go now you're going to feel sad compared to like there are a whole subsection of like children's grief books which i the worst one i read was one about and it was written by like psychologists and it was about someone's grandfather dying and 
it was told through the eyes of a dog who <laughs> was yeah. sad because granddad wouldn't take him to the park anymore. And it's like, and Jilly is sad because she's sad because grandpa died. And Billy is angry because grandpa is dead. And it was going through like really, it was so patronizing and awful. I was like, no kid's going to read this. This is garbage. Yeah, the the psychologist sort of angle. I don't <laughs> know. So I'm sure there have been plenty of good children's books written by children's psychologists, but there are so many bad psychologists <laughs> Mm. that uh, it's a, there's a bit of perilous potential there. It was like a pamphlet. It was like a book pamphlet mm. like that they would have given you in like some sort of doctor's office. But it was a genuine okay. book, but it was really awful. And mm. like I wouldn't have wanted to read it to my child. My child probably would have just wandered off midway. I think it's always good to, to introduce kids to those kinds of concepts quite early on. We talk about this quite a bit, actually, the children's films or the family fair that is quite uncompromising in its approach to, you know, the harder subjects. And the ones that, you know, deal with it well are the ones that really kind of stick in your mind. It is actually almost impossible to find an animated feature film that doesn't deal with death. I've looked because I'm constantly trying to find books that don't have death in them or, or animated films that don't have death in them. You know the Disney theory behind that? Because obviously the Disney films, they're all orphans in the Disney films. It's It's like you have to be an orphan in order to get a, a Disney film made of you. Um, it's, uh, or be made of wood. <laughs> you'll be, yeah. Um, it's um, uh, Don Han, uh, the uh, Disney producer, believes that it's because Walt Disney bought a house for his parents when he was, you know, doing all right for himself. Uh, and there was a carbon monoxide leak and both his parents were found in the house. And his, Jesus Christ. Yeah, his mother died. Um, his dad recovered, and so from then on, his films have this uh, this sort of echo of that moment in them. This sort of it's about loss. It's about uh, that kind of emotion. God, this is this is fun, isn't it, for a Christmas podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody! (laughs) (laughs) So just quickly to turn us back to the sad book and then we can move on and not be depressing anymore. So uh, the sad book was written because Michael Rosen's kid died in a weird home accident and then he wrote the book because every time we went to children's schools to talk about being a writer and stuff, the kids would ask whatever happened to the kid that was in all his books. And he was like, well, he died. And then he'd have to explain that. So he wrote the book so we didn't have to constantly bring it up all the time and also you know it helps because it teaches kids in a safe way how to uh deal with grief i had a tutor when i was studying that had a really good ethos with her own child and because she collected also really gruesome children's books because she ran or she was a tutor on the children's book illustration course I remember she had her kid in a screening we did of The Illusionist and that, you know, there's that bit, the clown where he's about to hang himself. Mm, okay. um, and her kid was about five, I think. And we were all just like, yeah, <laughs> like, looking at this kid, just like, hmm. Um, and we just heard her kid being like, why is the clown doing that? <laughs> and she was like, well, sometimes when people are really sad <laughs> and they don't want to live anymore. But we always... The way she sort of talked about, like, because obviously she had loads of children's books around in her house that dealt with things like grief or mental health or something. And her her daughter had a really good inbuilt self-censorship. She could tell when a book was turning into something that she didn't didn't want to read anymore. 
so she'd read like up to a point but like, i don't want to read this anymore mum and then yeah. close it and then they would deal with it like maybe in a couple of weeks time when the kid felt like emotionally ready to deal with it that's the thing i think is really interesting to try and put into a child's repertoire because you get so many kids that like watch way too many things like horror films or horror books or I don't know, sexual stuff when they're quite young and then there's a, definitely a point in your development where it switches over and you actually start to realize the implications of like shooting and death and that kind of thing and then maybe you're not as well adept to coping with it yeah where if you learn that earlier and you learn to self-censor you don't become either a a massive prude or a psycho. <laughs> so. These things have their their purpose, and that is to introduce these concepts to children, any any kind of concept. And it, I think it's the, the duty of a good parent. I speak uh, as somebody who doesn't have kids, which gives me the greatest authority to <laughs> tell people how to raise their own kids, obviously. But I think we, you know, when we share sad stories or, you know, cautionary tales to, uh, to, to children, it's it can only be for the for for the good of their kind of mental well-being if you shelter them from everything i mean that's bad news isn't it but yeah so going on a bear hunt <laughs> who was it done by who's the studio uh lupus right absolutely yeah lupus uh, films who uh, we talked to the people from lupus about ethel and ernest in the last episode uh well a couple of episodes ago and was that were those books illustrated by the same person no uh, uh ethel and ernest is the uh, raymond briggs uh, semi-autobiographical yeah. uh, tale of his parents and uh, it's Helen Noxenbury who uh, has illustrated uh, Michael Rosen's book. But the films, interestingly, you know, you can definitely tell it's it's coming from similar sensibilities, you know, a similar kind of mind, certainly to the approach to the 2D animation pipeline. Mm-hmm. Well, there's always, there's like tropes within children, definitely within children's illustrations, like the it comes down to a lot of what the medium they use like there's a lot of they kind of all do the pencil colored you know colored pencil and pencil drawings or watercolor drawings or ink and brush drawings like quentin blake but i think that some of it i wouldn't say it's even particularly limited to era or geographic region i think that the very illustratory style with the very watercolory look is kind of um I, i know a lot of like illustrators who it's kind of their first go to before they settle into their style. There's sometimes era things as well, isn't it? Like everything nowadays, not everything, but most things are kind of print styled or super graphic or whatever. Like a lot of people kind of have a kind of Oliver Jeffers-esque style because he's the hottest thing. He's like the Quentin Blake of the 21st century if Quentin Blake wasn't also the Quentin Blake of the 21st (laughs) centuries. But you know what I mean? Like he's, if you can get him to illustrate your book, it's going to do well. He definitely has a kind of uh, cred to him. Well, the people who pick up the children's books off the shelves aren't the kids. It's the parents. So whatever's eye-catching for the parents, really, isn't it? Which I find interesting because lots of things I see in, you know, if you're you're shopping for, like, a a picture book or something for a a relative or whatever, or you just want an easy read, and you're looking for for something that looks nice. And the things that appeal to your informed eye as an adult especially if you're in the worlds of illustration or design or animation are the ones that have the most adult approach to composition and color and art but kids don't really give a shit Mm. like uh, the 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 children's picture books that look the nicest to me i'm sure a lot of kids i would have found completely boring as a kid 
because they're all like autumnal hues. And I would have looked at it and been like, eh, brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't all of your internal working brown? Whenever you talk about that colour thing that you have where you see things in colour, all of your colours are like burgundy, brown and orange. <laughs> well, yeah, my synesthesia. Your inside is... of your head is just like a dirty organ. <laughs> <laughs> there is often a kind of dark brown backdrop upon which very bright and uh, enchanting colours will dance and flit. <laughs> like uh, like an old Norman McLaren piece, perhaps. Or I don't know if I agree with the children not being... I mean, I know they don't care about the pictures quite as much as the adults do, necessarily, but I... I, for instance, as a kid, I wouldn't touch a Roald Dahl book because I hated Quentin Blake's work. I love it now, now that I appreciate it and I understand how it's done and how hard it is. But as a kid, I f***ing hated it, so I wouldn't touch any of his books. It's weird. I didn't hate it, but I didn't think it was very good, mm. which is so weird. Yeah. Because you look at it now, and of course, it's it's absolutely masterful. And I remember having, because my dad, you know, was, a, was an artist, and I would have long conversations with my dad about why a Quentin Blake drawing is good and why another illustration isn't. And him sort of trying to explain it to me. And it's kind of like, yeah, you go on a holiday and it's like, oh, look at the mountains, look at the lovely vistas and the kids just want to play Game Boy. Yeah. But then I love Dr. Seuss. But that made no sense because I hated nonsense as a child. I was a really unfun child. You were all over the place. I was a really unfun child. <laughs> I was like, I'm not having any of that. Don't like nonsense. But I loved Dr. Seuss, I think, because it had rhythm and also because of being dyslexic, maybe the fact that the words, they were very, um, what's the word? Rhythmic, and also the phonetic. Mm-hmm. And I spell and write very phonetically. Right. And so probably I like that. But I also really liked the designs of his work because I liked, I like lines joining up. I don't like wishy-washy illustrations. I like them now and I appreciate them, but I can't do it myself. Mm. I think Dr. Seuss maybe has a more immediately identifiable appeal to someone who's very, very young. And I think it's all the bold colours as well. Yeah. And everything looks fluffy. It's interesting you should say about the the marriage there of illustration and maybe a little bit on the side of, of the what's actually written in the books as well because that's just as important for these things to become timeless classics. And uh, we're going on a bear hunt as a very kind of uh, literative uh verse to it it's always swishy swashy splishy splashy all that kind of stuff which kids absolutely adore which makes it when you when you when you've got like a what like a 30 page book with splishy splashy wishy washy swooshy wooshy right the way through it it becomes difficult to translate into a half hour long animated film yeah and especially as they go through the seasons as well uh in the book and it becomes a little bit of a challenge and lupus are no kind of strangers to sort of tackling challenges such as that they always go the long way around it seems when it comes to making their films anyone who's who's seen any of the snowman and the snow dog stuff known that they did it that you know they wanted to do it on on pencil and paper as opposed to doing it in a computer it goes to show the sort of dedication that lupus have when it comes to applying their own tenacious approach to projects so with this project, and uh, who was the director? This with this project, it was directed by uh, Joanna Harrison, mm-hmm. who uh, was actually one of the original um, storyboard artists on The Snowman, and uh, one of the, I suppose you call writer, obviously, but it was written by uh, by storyboard back then, uh, and uh, uh, Robin Shaw, who we've had on the podcast a few times, mm-hmm. uh, and on various squiggly bits and and pieces. He's usually an art director, but he co-directed. Uh, bear hunt uh, with Joanna. 
Well, it's certainly every there's a lot of um, palpable enthusiasm for this one in the air. I mean, the trailer's already out doing the rounds. Probably by the time this podcast goes out, we'll we'll be able to have seen a little bit more of it, maybe some clips and stuff. It's definitely one that people are you know enthusiastic for. I think it's uh, representative of quite a, a winning streak Lupus are mm. on at the moment. They're held in very high regard of late because of Ethel and Ernest. And I think this is a great, it's a great one-two punch. Two strong adaptations of good literature. And especially with, you know, something like The Snowman and The Snow Dog and having so much of the sort of personnel and people who had been veterans of earlier adaptations like The Snowman, the original one, and others. As with Ethel and Ernest, also a pretty strong cast as well. Pam Ferris and Mark Williams and Olivia Colman. Yeah, like from uh, Broadchurch and Peep Show and all that stuff. I think perfectly um, cast as the mum. Can you think of a more mum voice? She, yeah, mom. she was like, yeah, she was always like a a mummy character, even when she was sort of you know in her twenties. Yeah, she's exactly the same now as she was fifteen years ago, mm. and she so slides into very good comedy or very good drama. She's really lovely, and I like her a lot, but she kind of reminds me of, like, friends of mine's more aggressive mums <laughs> that have gone through, like, divorces and stuff. And yeah, she plays bitter. someone who's been toughened a bit by yeah. the world very well. Like, she's not super mumsy-mumsy. She's not like, oh, let's have cookies and stuff. She's the kind of one that would give you booze at 16. Oh, the last one she was in that we saw, that uh, Fleabag show. Mm, like, she was, she was odious in that. <laughs> but wonderful. Like, that she's fantastic. I assume it's going to be a slightly different performance in Bad. But, she played uh, good evil stepmother. So, I believe we do have another interview. We certainly do, Ben. We've got an interview here with the co-directors, Joanna Harrison and Robin Shaw. I'm Joanna Harrison and I'm co-director of We're Going on Bear Hunt. And I'm Robin Shaw, co-director of We're Going on Bear Hunt. When the project landed on your desk, what happened? How did it land on your desks? It, well, for me, it landed in my email box and I got an email from Ruth saying would you be interested in developing this book we're going on a bear hunt and I've got three children so I knew the book really well and to me it seemed like a, you know wow this is a, an absolute dream come true because I write and illustrate children's books anyway and I've just written a book called Grizzly Dad which was about grizzly bears so it's a, an area I feel quite comfortable in anyway so I went through and um, yes, so I wrote a treatment, um, which was, we have the book, it takes about five minutes to read, so it really needed to be expanded into half, half an hour film. So I created a, a backstory of, first of all, you know, well, first of all, I had to decide what were the children, who are the children. They're very evidently four children, and everyone thought, Dad. But actually, it isn't that. It's a teenage boy. So you've got a, a family group of children. Some I had to get rid of the parents because if parents are involved, you can have no fun because parents would never let children go off bear hunting and wading through rivers and God knows what, going through snowstorms. So I had to create a vehicle to get rid of the parents. Once I got rid of the parents, the children were free to go and go on their bear hunt. There had to be a motivation for the bear hunt. So I had to build that in. Um, and by the time they got to the bear, he is the heart of the story. It's what the story is all about. It's about the bear. But in the book, we hardly see him at all. You know, he's just a little bit scary as well. A lot of children are frightened of the, the picture in the book of the bear. The last picture in the book, we see 
it's a way of interpreting the posture of the bear, but he's not scary at all. He's just a sad, lonely bear. And actually, Helen... That's the most significant picture in the book. It is, doesn't it? It's got the biggest clue there of the book that this is just a sad, sad bear. <coughs> Probably only wanted to play with the children. And Helen Oxenbury based that um, drawing on a friend of hers who had depression. So, um, so that gave me the, 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 um, the idea to make more of the bear. So when they get to the cave, the little girl, Rosie, so she is the main driving force of this film. She's one who gets separated off from the other children and comes across this bear. And a relationship is develops between them. And you can see he's just a sad old bear who's got a cold and, you know, really miserable. You know, he's just miserable. And as well as this, I've gotten a sort of a, a sub-story, that's the right word, of grandpa, a grandpa who's died maybe fairly recently, which Rosie loved, she loved him dearly. So there's a big vacuum in her life, an emotional vacuum. And in a way, this bear, this brief relationship she has with the bear fills that emotional vacuum. And, um, so that was, that was it, really. So it, I've just made it a much bigger story. And uh, yeah, that's... Then once Joe uh, worked up a basic uh, treatment, she then asked if I wanted to be involved in some way, and they did too. Um, and I said yes, of course I would. Who wouldn't? And um, and then uh, yeah, I don't know. But there was a bit of shilly shallying with scripts and stuff. Yeah. And we 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 worked out uh, my new show of the staging of the thi uh, of things. Um, together and and then uh, planned out storyboards and it, it's all been quite smooth, really. Yeah. It's been pretty yeah. good. We've worked quite well together. And and now and now we're in in production. There's kind of um, there's a, there's a kind of day to day pra uh, practical side of things which which I take m more care of. Being with all the animators and. Uh, layout and background, tech, the comping, all sorts of things like that really. And um, I think the thing that works extremely well with me and Joe, and uh, which was evident quite early on, was Joe's really got a, 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 a handle on, this happened with the snowman and snow dog as well, Joe has always got a very, really good handle on, on the heart and soul of the story. So, when, you, when you're making a film, when you're doing anything, when you're doing illustrations for a book, um, you can start with the right intention, with quite a simple bit of motivation, a simple tale to tell, and you, that's what gets you going. But the doing of it can sometimes send you off in funny little directions, and you can find yourself being bogged down, sent off down blind uh, alleys, with the end result that you can lose sight of what is the essence of the story, that, that you lose sight of how an audience should be feeling when seeing the story, an audience without any knowledge of how you've made the, the film. And Joe's always got a very good grasp of, of, of that. And, um, and I've got a very good grasp of being able to sort of keep keep a kind of global 
view on what's going on where, how it's being done, um, how can we do this, how can we make things work, how, how to achieve, how to find ways of bringing the heart of the story to, to life. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we're talking about expansion of, of the storyline, I suppose that also counts as giving the children uh, personalities as well. But we, we were really keen to keep the children real children, not generic children or cartoon, cartoony children, real children, real emotions, and children that think as well. So that was really important to me. And also their move, the way they move is very particular to that particular child. So little Max is all over the place, isn't he? He's, he's, he's sort of slightly too much energy and over... over it's quite interesting, once you started, you realise some people really understand children and, and, and how they move and think and talk, yeah. and some people just don't. And they need to get really... There was quite a lot of work involved in getting animators used to thinking like children, behaving like children, being light on their feet, moving all the time, fidgety. You know. um, and the way they react to each other as well, that's, yeah. that's really important. And that, it's, the baby is fantastic, you know, getting the baby to actually behave like a baby, do things babies do, and it's, it works really well. And the dog as well, Rufus, mm -hmm. Rufus yeah. is fantastic. And, uh, and also we have now when Rosie meets the bear in the cave, the bear is always a bear, he's never anthropomorphised at all, and it just works wonderfully well. We're, the standard of animation on this is, is, is superb, mm. isn't it? Mm. Absolutely superb. We've kept a lot, a, a, a lot of the animators from Ethel and Ernest. Mm. They've been good enough to come back, in spite of the, the abuse they suffered. In. <laughs> <laughs> to come back for more, Robin, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got some really, really good people. Who, and uh, some, some of the animation just sings. Heavenly, heavenly. Yeah. The uh, the cover of the book alone looks animated. The uh, with Helen Oxenbury's uh, work. That's just because she's an excellent illustrator who can capture a moment. She can. How do you translate that? With great difficulty. Yeah. Uh, well, fortunately, we can do it in, in more drawings than she can. So she can do. Um, not that one, because that's colouring. But she can do. And the, the, the movement in, 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 in these two figures here, the, 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 the motion in them, she's managed to do that in a single drawing. We can do it in, over the course of a 20-second scene. Um, yeah, you, sorry, but, but you know from that one drawing, you know she's skipping. She has to be skipping. He has to be swashing his stick like that. So this, the, yeah. the, this, this illustration here is given about 20 seconds in the film as they walk across a meadow. There's other things going on as well, but uh, it's just that it's, it's so, it's so symbolizes the book. I was going to use the word iconic then, but I hate the word iconic. Um, <laughs> it really sums up the book and people will recognize that moment in the film as being the book cover. But, um, but actually people are quite moved. They've seen yeah. the film, they go, oh, is the book come to life? You know, because everybody loves the book. They absolutely adore the book, which has been a huge challenge for us to remain true to the book, but to make the film. 
in this. There's, there's something this really life. interesting though that, that has been become more and more apparent it is that when when I first read Joe's treatment, I saw it a certain way um, because you know we, we both draw, we both we're both visual creative types. <laughs> whatever, I, I, whatever. But you and then. Uh, I always assume that everyone else is going to be seeing it in exactly the same way. And then Joe and I talk about it, and we see it in the same way, but then we realise that other, uh, uh, other people aren't. Another anim an animator, a producer, um, uh, they're just not seeing it in the same way. But straight away, when I read Joe's treatment, I saw, I saw this film as being something very special. Uh, an in something that harked back to classic children's films um, where children are the heroes, not necessarily animated films, films like the Railway Children or, 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 or um, what's the one with Anne Bates in the shed? Anne Bates in the shed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Whistle Down the Wind. Where children are really in, in, in the fore and there's, it's so distinctly British and unashamedly British. And, uh, and um, there's, a, there's a almost, a, there's also a kind of, um, the presence of the landscape as well is, is, is so important. And um, almost like, um, what would I compare it to? Norfolk Noir. Norfolk Noir. Um, we know you get Nordic Noir, it's a bit like Ingmar Bergman, where got the landscape is so so present that the environment. Um, uh, this is a bit like that. The environment's another character. Oh, it's completely, and also the wildlife. You know, we brought in the bird. You know, the the curlews, the sound of the seabirds, and we've got um, wildlife. We've got a hedgehog and rabbits, and but they all. Um, they're all very much part of the same environment. Yeah, yeah. They all have an equal balance. It's like the children, the environment, the weather, the music we've got is beautiful. They all have their own role to play, but the weather we felt was, because they go through, they go from a sunny day, they go through the mist, they go into the wood, where it's almost, it's almost like going through the seasons, they go through a snowstorm. It's got everything really, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I think the, also the arc of the story is fantastic because you're really building up to this climax where she meets the bear. It, it just it's, it is the perfect story arc, I think. Mm. And uh, well, wait till you see it. There's also there's something else that um, that can go wrong as, as, as well as people's uh, differing perceptions of of a treatment or a, or a storyboard. And um, it's technology. I think. I think we both. You know, I, I, I'm. I'm very up to date with compositing and and all sorts of things. TV paint, Photoshop, all, all, all of that. But it's quite important. And this is where Joe, holding on to that heart of the story, comes in as well. It's quite important. To do things simply if you can do them simply and not not overcomplicate things um, it's very easy to go down the overcomplicated group uh, I've, uh, I've ended up going down it myself in my own work 
I've seen other people doing it in their work. Um, so we're trying to, to allow the animation to do its job, the music to do its job, the backgrounds to do their job, and not have to do too much, too, too much in, in compositing. No great swanky effects, no, um, just avoiding as much extra fiddly nonsense work as possible. Um, so that we just let, let the film do its job in, 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 in as simple a way as possible. Does that come from a, a, a tradition of films in London, TBC, of tandem? Of well, yeah, it has yeah. to, yeah. Do you think there's a real um, uh, a London, would you say, scene or history or, or, or even heritage that you feel that you're uh, a part of when creating work like this? I think there's definitely a heritage because I worked on The Snowman. Yes, yeah, long, long, really? long time ago. I didn't know that. Did you? Shut up. Long, long time ago, and um, it's, it, it was kind of serendipity in a way that everything came together. We had, and I, going back to what Robin was saying, that animation is only a vehicle to, to convey a story. The story is the most important thing. And the story in Snowman is so simple and so unaffected and moving that although having, I can say this myself, there's quite a lot of dodgy animation in the Snowman, there's continuity mistakes, but somehow it all comes together and it works. And I think we just create a little bit of magic with that. And I really think this is the nearest of everything I've ever done. The bear hunt is the nearest I've been to creating another little bit of magic because it's so heartfelt. Mm. You know, it really is. I, I was it's going to so point out the similarities is that you expanded the original Snowman story. Certainly did. Yes, I've storyboarded lots of the Snowman, came up with the, the um, Father Christmas sequence, all of that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the yes. have to remain true to Raymond Brigham in this case. Michael Rosen's um, original yeah. uh, vision. How did you uh, keep in touch with uh, Michael Rosen and Helen Oxenbridge? Were they involved in any? In they, the, they've uh, been involved and they've been 100% supportive throughout the whole thing. Michael loved the treatments and he actually came up with some good ideas as well. So it's been very much a collaborative um, uh, film. <coughs> and the, We've taken on, I remember in the treatment, taken on all sorts of ideas from people that, that really made it work. It's a real, I know it sounds such a cliche, cliche but it's a real team effort, mm. isn't it? Mm, definitely. So, but they, they just couldn't be, could not be nicer in every way. And uh, Michael lends his voice as well to the He's slowed down for him, or, sp or sped up for him. Yeah. Michael's very happy to lend his voice. He thoroughly enjoyed it. He sat in this recording booth doing endless bear sneezes. I think I can channel bear. Channel bear. <laughs> no, he, he loved it. He wanted to be the hedgehog, the dog, uh, bear. Ah. It's brilliant. So, with, you know, the film has a bit of um, Michael in it as well, which is just great. Oh, yeah, he's the narrator. He's, he's the, the narrator. Telly. Yeah. Yeah. So he runs right the way through it. He runs right the way through it, absolutely. Well, that question leads on to the cast then, the rest of the cast in the film. Yes. 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, those guys who, who was chosen? And <laughs> yeah, well, we were uh, auditions, um, lots of children um, for the part. Let me think back. We had, yeah, and they, well, the, yeah, just remind me. So long ago. Well, there, there was a bit of serendipity involved in 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 Max and Rosie. Yes. Because uh, yes, uh, Rosie, uh, the main girl, is voiced by. Um, the daughter of someone who was working here, who d was just doing doing the voice for a, a, a guide track, really, to enable us to, to get um, storyboarding. Uh, but she was so good; she was just wonderful. And the same thing with the little boy who plays Max. So we have actually kept some takes from the original um, guide track, uh, but we did a proper record with them. So that you know, two well no they do do a little bit of acting but they're, they're hardly they're hardly stage school kids uh, these two Katie and uh, Stan um, we auditioned for uh, we did find a Stan a very nice young man called McCready uh, but we couldn't find a Katie they all sounded like they were from Rodine or um, or, or just, just wrong wrong yeah. yeah just stage school basically uh, so in the end, um, I, uh, I got two of my daughters to audition, and um, uh, Heather, my middle daughter, is it was spot on. <laughs> so so yeah, as only only one professional actor among the children. I'm not sure about the baby. I think that may be a mixture of several babies probably, and effects. Probably Michael. <laughs> yes. I am Michael Rosen. Shout out to the baby. Baby. <laughs> um, and uh, um, uh, Mark Williams, terrific comic actor. He's fun. Who really, really adds... Uh, but he's only got a small part. Same with Olivia Coleman, same with Pam Ferris. But uh, Mark Williams, in the few lines that he's got, really, really lifts your spirits and just adds... A, lovely light touch to it, like comedy, um, individual touch, to, to, to the extent where, uh, well, I certainly want to fiddle with the character models to incorporate some of his individuality in his voice. Such warmth to those character actors. That you yeah. Yes, and, and Pam Ferris was just... She was uh, astonishing. She had some hysterics, yeah. she was such fun to work with. She's only got a few lines, but she brought such sort of warmth and character to them. And she was perfect for Granny, because I always thought that in films and books, Granny's always get a hard time because they're little dodgy old things with white hair. And so I wanted to base the Granny in this on my own mother, who's just a huge amount of fun and would be the first to dance and enjoy herself. So we've got a real, really positive Granny in this film, which I love. But she, she, she made us. She made us laugh. And it, I mean, she, I don't know how long she was in, in in the booth for. It wasn't that long, but she made us. She managed to make us laugh and cry, even though we could see her, and we knew. You know, we obviously knew about the scenes that she, the scene that she was um, doing the lines for, but she just took the basic lines and just turned them into something completely new, and it really was quite astonishing how. How moving she could be, which just with a few noises and a few words. Yeah, really, really class act. Hundred percent. It's so impressive. Yeah.
And then Yorkshire by Olivia. Yeah, we should. Oh, our star, really. Yeah. Yeah, so Olivia Coleman came along and she's a very impressive actress, as you know, and amazing. And she actually brought a different dimension, I think, to Mum than we originally thought, don't you? She's turned, Mum's turned out to be a more gentler yes. character. I was rather basing the mother on me. It's what I do. <laughs> anyway, but she's turned so that Mum is now, but, but lovely. She's, she's some of the the things she says, sort of ad hoc things she says with the baby at the end are delightful. They're lovely. So we're very, very lucky to have her. And then, yeah, Michael is the bear. Michael is the bear. <laughs> very good bear. Thanks to Joanna Harrison and Robin Shaw talking about We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Is that on Christmas Eve? It is Christmas Eve, 7.30, Channel 4. Splendid. So after Christmas, uh, in the form of two specials, Unboxing Day and the day after, respectively. Another Christmas adaptation, not especially Christmas-themed, I don't think, hmm. but certainly another children's classic, Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes, which is being put together by Magic Light Pictures, and they are responsible for some of the most talked-about children's Christmas special adaptations, or family Christmas special adaptations, such as the Gruffalo Room on the Broom and Stick Man, we talked about last year. They've been making it kind of an annual thing, haven't they? Or at least a fairly regular thing. They mentioned it last year in the podcast that they were doing Revolting Rhymes. And uh, I think we said then that we were a little bit excited for it. Well, I think that there's a lot of uh, fun stuff to mine in those old stories. As well as if people aren't familiar, I would be surprised. But Poetry Collections by Roald Dahl. There have been some interesting stills uh, released at the time of recording this podcast very much not evocative of quentin blake's illustration style it must be impossible though really how the hell would you animate in quentin blake style in any real way i can picture it like it wouldn't look that nice i've, I've often thought about how it would look that's that's i mean there's there's plenty of illustrators out there and you can wonder and think how would it how would it look i mean very after effectsy Oh, would it, would it look After Effectsy? Would it look like rhubarb and custard? Would it look like, you know, how would you do it? How would you do it if you were animating it? It would be like trying to adapt Bill Watterson's style, mm. which some people, do. sometimes you'll see like a little student film, someone will have done something to try and do that. And you just think, thank Christ, they never made a show out of that comic strip. Because mm. it, it's impossible to, to, he had so much movement and dynamic action. There was, his drawings moved so much that it's actually kind of impossible to really sort of nail down that in animation, weirdly enough, because so much of it is in the single drawing. Uh, and I think that, yeah, Quentin Blake, it's similar, a very different style, but a very sort of similar, similarly hard to pin down, I'm yeah. sure, that quality of movement. Because Rodar is such a famous writer and his books have been republished so many times, I think people forget that there have been other illustrators that have adapted his stories other than Quentin Blake, so mm. that there are... like. James and the Giant Peach had a illustrator that I only found out about ten years ago that there was a whole other adaptation of James and the Giant Peach that had a very more similar style of illustration to the film, like very nineteen twenties Art Nouveau styled illustration, which I have and found. Mm-hmm. Which you're like, oh, so this is how they came up with this idea for the film. Yeah, probably informed yeah, the design rather than. Because that, that's nothing like Quentin Blake's sketches and stuff. Yeah, I, I had a couple of 
different editions of Roald Dahl books that weren't Quentin Blake as well. I think that probably all of the ones that are in print now, if Quentin Blake didn't do them at the time, they probably like had him go back and do them for consistency. Whichever print run you go by, I think it's very kind of ordered. And I think Quentin Blake is a real sort of mainstay of, you know, mm. uh, they just go together very well. Mm. But yeah, Revolting Rhymes, I think my sort of prevailing memory of this had a really uh, quite bad adaptation of it on video cassette. I'm, I'm, I'm literally that. just remembering this. Yeah. And it was, it's what they had done was they took the Quentin Blake illustrations and ran it through like After Effects or what it would have been. And it was all like pans, but like weird, like. It was like a still, and then it would merge with another still, and another yeah. still. Like, it wasn't it was animation. It mostly just panning over the original illustrations. Like a motion then, comic. Mm. But not not nearly that elaborate. Like, there's a, there is a word for that, because it was used in documentaries a lot. I've got it up now. I'm giving it a, a quick little look. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Ken Burns effect is what it was. Oh, yeah. Where they, you just take the still image, and you literally just move... You just pan it across. It's like the easiest... They, I guess they wouldn't have had After Effects back then, but it's the easiest thing you can do in After Effects. Yeah. What people do sometimes to make it a little bit more interesting or like give it depth is they'll, they'll cut up, up the picture they? yeah, and give and it like a, sort a of little 3D bit of a drop quality. shadow. And... I don't believe they had that, that going on in this, though. I'm watching it no. now, and it is a real shame because what you have with the Quentin Blake illustration is you have so much just on the page on its own before you even think about animating it is you have so much liveliness and so much it's, it's so vibrant yeah but once it's been put through this particular process uh of the, the old revolting rhymes process uh where it's i don't know if it's been redrawn uh or bits of it have been redrawn based on the original drawings it's like they've it been just, colored in badly Yes, mm. it, it sucks all of that life out of it. And they just kind of stagger across the screen in a very kind of dead way. It's not the best. I'm glad it's been redone by uh, Magic Light, I'll tell you that. I think I remember seeing these as a kid and thinking, why didn't they just animate them like they did those uh, gruesome tales for gruesome, like horrible children? Which were shit as well, but as a kid I thought they were amazing. And what, <laughs> what do they do with those? It was like Flash. Okay. It's like proper dodgy, but I mean, you can see what um, like a really lazy way to do a Quentin Blake animation based on looking at this old Revolting Rhymes animation, if you can call it that. You could run it through like cell action and rig up a character, like a character with a profile, and have it move in that very distinct cell action way. But the way you'd want to see it, of course, would be full animation. But with would... full animation, it would run into its own set of traps of like, like I was saying before, how do you actually really nail? The... I imagine if you were going to try and adapt a Quentin Blake drawing into an animation thing, you'd have to have a, a very specific kind of animator that could really do a lot of bounce and stretch because because there's so much energy in the drawing, you'd need to match that energy in the animation. But of course, because the drawings don't normally finish themselves, and sometimes there'll be legs that don't logically make sense but get across the idea of what the pose is meant to be that would be quite hard to do without completely destroying the image yeah perhaps all of this of course is moot because they didn't do any of that with this <laughs> new um, thing I mean there's a certain there's a quality of it that feels familiar it it's feels the uh, comfortable of characters and yeah the, the big noses and the things like that they've kept um, the basic like silhouette of characters from the original going like the fox is very nose centric yeah in both well, 
I think this is the one I've just popped up here. I think this is Jack and the Beanstalk, the mother and the son. Mm. Yeah. So if you sort of compare that to the original illustration, which is up here. Mm. The new CG models actually look quite nice. Yeah. They look like art toys in a way. They're still, yeah. They've got that mm. kind of aggressive <laughs> Roald Dahl look that the characters have, or that soft Roald Dahl look that the characters have. Uh, that you know Quentin Blake uh, lends to Roald Dahl's writing, but they look like art toys, or maybe a little bit. And I've not seen these in motion yet, but maybe a little bit of um, Trumpton or Camberwick Green. Yeah, I could see that. But you'd love to get them in a three D printer and print them out, wouldn't you? At this point, other than kind of this sort of look at uh, the stills, not really sure how it's going to be adapted. I would assume faithfully because Magic Light tend to do quite a good job of staying to the original source text, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Yeah. And why would you want to bugger that about when it's rolled Dahl and they're so dependent on the use of language, the rhythm of the words, that kind of thing? I think it's good as well that they're doing it because I think when I found out this particular Roald Dahl book, because this is one of the very few ones I did read when I was a kid, was going to be adapted into CGI, I was slightly disappointed because the reason why I like Roald Dahl is normally because it's adapted into stop motion, and I think stop motion gives it that kind of visceral creepiness that Roald Dahl's books have. And when you sort of translate that into a puppet with a little bit of lag and noise on it, like in Fantastic Mr. Fox, it sort of, I don't know, evokes something a little bit deeper, but Magic Light are normally very good at adapting an illustration style into a CG world and also pretty good at not over-cleaning everything. Yeah, kind of, yeah, they, they, they find a good style... They don't try and, you know, make everything ridiculously photoreal or... Or too shiny. It, everything has, like, a blend texture. It looks crafted. Yeah. I feel like... Wasn't there another collection that Roald Dahl did that was... Certainly, it was laid out in a very similar way. had a very similar cover, but I don't think it was fairy tales. But I'm trying to think. Do you remember? I think so. Dirty Beasts? Oh, that may have been it, yeah. Because one of them was about a hedgehog. I remember that. It was the crocodile who eats the children, covers them in chocolate or something. Oh, yeah, that sounds... Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Good old Roald Dahl. What yeah. a weirdo. Because <laughs> I remember, I think a few episodes back, we were talking about, like, the second Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and how f***ed up that is. <laughs> They're in space now and, you know, the president's involved. Yeah. Anyway, let's, uh, let's hear a bit more about Revolting Rhymes, the upcoming two-part Christmas special from Magic Light's producer, Mr. Michael Rose. We've talked to you um, a couple of times uh, with some of your recent Christmas specials. Yeah. Adapting Julia Donaldson. And so this year with Roald Dahl, was that sort of primarily in honor of his centenary? Uh, no, we, we, we well, uh, yes and no. We were looking for something to um, to produce that could be a sort of a Christmas event. And in fact, BBC had approached us a few years back saying, um, you know, they loved the Donaldson films, but was there something that we could do which was, would be a multi-part project? Uh, I'm more than just one half hour. And um, it was my... Uh, my producing partner Martin Pope, who, who came into the office one morning waving his uh, his his sort of well-thumbed family copy of Revolting Rhymes, um, and saying this you know this, this would be would be great. We both thought it was a fantastic um, fantastic material. In Roald Dahl's book, he takes six classic fairy tales and retells them in a in a very sort of Dahlesque way. And when we started to really go into the material in detail, we realised that they were each individual story was too short for a single half hour, but by combining them, uh, we could create 
you know, two rather fun half hours. Hmm. So was it you guys who sort of made the... When it comes to adapting something like this, do you have to approach Roald Dahl, or were they, was his sort of team, did they kind of suggest it? So we, we you know, having so identified it as being something we, we wanted to do, we then approached the Royal Dahl estate and began a fairly sort of lengthy um, discussion with them to, to get the rights. And they're, they're very... Um, understandably very cautious in protecting you know uh, Roald Dahl's um, estate and legacy and they're very careful about you know uh, who they work with and, and what so it was, a, it was a long a long sort of slow conversation to persuade them that um, you know of our of our sort of vision for, for how we would take revolting rhymes um, and bring it to the screen and yes then um, in answer to your first question um, it was uh, our, our timing managed to coincide with his uh, the centenary of his birth which is this year um, and it turns out that Revolting Rhymes was one of only two projects authorised by the Dallas State for the centenary year the, first, the other one being uh, Steven Spielberg's BFG which of course came out in the summer so in a way the, the timing was very, very fortunate for us because not only did we have this, this great material but we could actually sort of uh, had a destination for it and, and also for the BBC to have something of um, you know, something to sort of celebrate uh, to mark it that the last centenary was 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 good for them as well. Hmm. It is quite interesting that they would have specific books available. I guess was that something that he kind of uh, had determined before he passed on, or is it like do they make a sort of executive decision? We'll keep this one, make sure it's never adapted, but these ones can be. <clears throat> I think they. I think the, the estate has been managed by um, different people over the years, and inevitably uh, since, since uh, Dahl died, and uh, the current um, MD is is Luke Kelly, who's actually Roald Dahl's grandson. Um, and and yes, I think they manage their, you know, the, the portfolio of Dahl titles carefully because they want to obviously create, um, uh, sort of create the largest Dahl business possible, but but over the, you know. Uh, but for, for the long term, so I think they do take a view that uh, you know X, X title is is you know something they could do this with, and 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 then another title is something they do something else with. Mm-hmm. Then having uh, got the rights, we then went back to to sort of old colleagues of ours, um, Jacob Shu, who co-directed the Gruffalo, and Jan Lahau, who co-directed Room on the Room for us. Um, both those both those, of course, Don, Donaldson Scheffler half hours. And we started talking to them very early on because not only about how we would, how we could best combine the stories and, and structure them into 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 the half-hour films, but also how to. Um, we, we were really captivated by, as most people are, by Quentin Blake's illustrations in in the uh, in the book, um, and how we could take Quentin Blake's uh, 2D illustrative style into into 3D animation. Yeah, it does definitely evoke that that feel, um, but also it kind of fits in with a sort of established like magic light look, I guess. For people who are familiar with the other specials, it kind of embraces both. It did seem that there was a framing device uh, in the clips that I saw that had a slightly different style. That's right. Um, and it's interesting you say that because we we sort of in a way set out to do something different and and you know it's different and new to what we've done before. Um, it, it is. Um, there are two worlds. There is the um, world of the. Um, so, so the in combining the stories, what interested us was obviously the, 
the individual stories are fun, but actually what makes them really special is the way Dahl tells them. And it's, it's bringing his voice out as the narrator that, that really excited us. Um, and so the approach is um, that we've, we've told in the first film, we tell three of the stories, which is uh, um, Snow White, Little Red Riding Hood, and The Three Little Pigs. And in the second story, we tell uh, Jack and the Beanstalk and Cinderella. And in each, in each film, those, those stories are interwoven uh, and told by, a, uh, told by a wolf who is our narrator throughout. And, the, and what transpires over the course of the two films, certainly by the end of the first film, is that the wolf has his own tale to tell. Uh, and he has a reason for telling us these stories. So, um, so we set up two separate worlds. One, one is the frame story, which starts off with a wolf uh, meeting uh, an elderly lady in a cafe who turns out to be a babysitter for two children who live across the road. Uh, they get into conversation, and, and he starts telling telling the stories of uh, the interwoven stories of uh, Snow White, Little Riding Hood, and Three Little Pigs. Uh, and that continues through into into the the second part. Uh, I won't spoil it for your for your for your audience by giving it away. <laughs> That's a sort of cliffhanger ending to, to to part one. Um, so the um, the frame story world, as we call it in the cafe, is a very sort of three D um, uh, sort of more realistic CGI. And then the world of the fairy tales, the world that the wolf is narrating is uh, more of a stage-set world. It's 3D, but it's, it's a sort of stage-set world as though they're, a, they're more of a staged environment. The scenery feels more like the flats of a, of a theatre, but, but ones where, where you can go in any, any direction, you know, and, and uh, that there's, no, there's no limits to the stage. And that was really very personal. We wanted to create a different world for the fairy tales than to the main story. I've always sort of liked the sort of different takes on approaching the CG, like with, you know at times being sort of evocative of stop motion processes with stuff like room on the broom and things like that. And definitely it's sort of nice to see something that doesn't look like, you know, everything, I guess it's sort of nice to see a bit of inventiveness because really when it's so limitless as CG is very few people seem to embrace that potential, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we, we did set out to, to create something very different. And I think what Jacob and Jan have, 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 have achieved is, you know, no, my view, but I would say this, you know, I think something incredibly unique as a, as a look and a feel in a world. And, and certainly the design of the films is, is something quite striking, I think. And, and hopefully the audience will feel taken into these, these very different sort of animated worlds. Mm-hmm. Going back to sort of your relationship with the directors originally, how did you sort of come to work with them on um, uh, Room on the Room and Gruffalo, respectively? It's, oh, well, that, that starts off way back, um, I don't know, 2004, five or something, and I, I met Jacob Shue at Annecy, I think, and he was uh, then a, uh, he was one of the founder partners of the Studio Soy uh, in Ludwigsburg, uh, Germany, a town outside Stuttgart in Germany. Um, and I thought they were doing really interesting work. They were a collective of um, graduates from the uh, film Academy of Barton Württemberg, which is based in Ludwigsburg, one of the sort of top uh, film schools in Germany. Um, and they were doing interesting work, and I, I really liked the way he, he thought about um, material. And uh, uh, we, we got talking about the Gruffalo, and he, he was very excited about it. 
And when we finally got the rights of the Gruffalo, which uh, was a journey of, in itself, um, we was talking to a number of different people uh, about about how we might take it into animation. And Jacob um, sort of really asked to do a test for us and, and pitched this idea of um, uh, of of taking uh, of combining uh, CGI characters with a, with model sets. And I must say, at that time, I think we were we were a bit um, uh, somewhat nervous of it, or, or we, we, we were skeptical that it that it would work. You know, and I, I came from a stop motion background with Aardman, um and loved that three D tactile world, but I, I wasn't quite sure how it worked with, with CGI. And anyway, so Studio Soy did a, a short test for us, and when we saw it, it was it was a, a mouse walking through the woods. And it was just a knockout, and we said, oh, that's it. That's what we've always dreamt Gruffalo could be. And, and so we started working with, with Studio Soil, with Jacob. Jacob then brought in Max Lang, um, who was a, a student of his at the Film Academy. Uh, Max became the co-director on Gruffalo. Um, and when it came to doing Room on the Broom, uh, we asked Max to direct that, and Max brought in uh, um, an ex-colleague of his at the film school, another student called Ian Lachauer, and they co-directed Room on the Broom together. So, um, a sort of continually shifting cast, but you know, of people we've worked with over the years, and all all fantastic talents. As far as like how they worked on these specials, were they sort of constantly like in tandem, or was one kind of focusing on one world and the other on the other world? Or no, they they did everything very much um, t- together. Uh, you know, right from the start, they 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 worked on the. Um, on, on the scripting and storyboarding and, and the planning of it, um, probably Jacob uh, Jacob really took lead on um, character design and um, and and the, you know, the art direction, um, and and Jan probably more on on the uh, editorial, the editing and editorial part of the storyboarding process. Um, but I'd say they work pretty much together, although always as two directors do, dividing things up, you know, as as they go, as, as makes sense for the production. So as far, as far as developing the look, because you were saying about uh, how important Quentin Blake is, is there any sort of involvement from him or his people, like as as far as that goes, or consulting, or were you kind of given free reign to sort of reinvent it your way? Uh, we we were given free reign. I mean, Martin and I met with Quentin Blake, Sir Quentin, um, uh, a few a few times over the production, and we, we we sort of took care to show him our work in progress and get his sort of blessing on it. But he was very enthusiastic right from the start about the the way that his we'd taken his character illustrations into 3D. Um, and I think, you know, at that point he felt he was kind of looking, you know, it probably looked okay to him and, and he's, he's very busy and 83, 84 years old and got lots to do. So I think he, he you know, he didn't want to get too involved beyond that. But we certainly have shown him the work fairly regularly and he, he's been very, very complimentary about it. And I, and I think what, what Jacob and Ian did do, they did a, 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 a test piece for us up front uh, where we were testing the this this this, this um we were testing the, the the world of the animated look of the fairy tale world the, the fairy tale look if you like the stage steps look um and on that that was a test of Jack's mother climbing the beanstalk um and I think it really showed it really very successfully took Quentin Blake's character illustration into the sort of a new medium of three three D CGI and we. You know, we felt that was a very it was it was Blake, but it was Blake in 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 a different medium. As far as the cast for your version, and I, I've really enjoyed what I've heard so far. 
of uh, Dominic West's performance. Um, did you have him in mind from the get-go? Uh, yes, he was very much someone we we we, we thought of. It. I mean, we wanted um, you know, this, this this wolf has to take us on a journey across two films and both be a narrator, but but also have a sort of revenge story of his own to tell. Uh, and and Dominic West got this marvelous. You know, voice and obviously wonderful acting ability, um, and and can do can do uh, emotion and can do um, light and shade and and so on. So he he was he was really a very natural choice for the narrator, and I think he does a great great job. Very lovely warmth to him as well. I'd say. As far as the other cast, were there people that you sort of had? Because I know I think David Williams is in it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of two two um, two uh, uh, actors we worked. Before, I mean, uh, Dave Williams, who's in uh, Room on the Broom, uh, is plays multiple roles in across the two films. He's he's one of the wolves. He's Jack's mother. He's one of the three little pigs, or three pigs, and so on. Um, and and Rob Brydon, who I've been in all our films so far, uh, all our, our half half our animations, and he again plays multiple roles. He plays the King of Snow White, uh, Snow White's father. He plays one of the pigs, and so forth. Uh, and both of them are just, you know, uh, massive comedic talents and, and incredible, incredible versatility as well, and the ability to um, create real from just a few a few lines, but create real real character and real performance, and uh, fantastic working with them. Um, and then, and then there was some, um, uh, you know, the rest of the cast: um, Tamsin Gregg, um, uh, a trio of, of brilliant uh, women: Belle Poli, Gemma Chan, and Rose Leslie. Uh, playing Cinderella, Snow White, and Little Red Riding Hood, respectively. Um, Isaac Hempstead Wright, who's in Game of Thrones, um, plays Bran in Game of Thrones. Is is Jack, Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, and the last cast member is a, another another multi-role player, is Bertie Carvel, who who was Mrs. Trunchbull in on stage in the original Matilda stage show. Um, so a sort of dull, a dull uh, familiar, and he again takes on multiple roles. So it was we were really lucky. It was fun. Uh, once again, a fantastic voice cast, and it shows. I think it, it's an inspiration for the animators. You know, the voices are an inspiration for the animators, um, and and they they just um, bring the stories to life. Cool. I would assume that probably whatever's kind of next for you guys would be either sort of under wraps or in development. Um, is there anything happening next that you're able to talk about? Yeah, it's not not a. It's, I think we've we've already announced it. But it's um, we, our next project is um, another Julia Donson Axel Scheffler book, which came out in 2011, which is the Highway Rat, uh, which is a swashbuckler with buns and biscuits. Is our is our tagline? But it's a swashbuckling, greedy rat who has a, a love for sugar and all things sweet, which leads him to, um, uh, you know, leads him to into a sticky problem, uh, and that's for uh, BBC One next Christmas. So we're in production of that on the moment uh, with uh, Yarun Yasbart, who directed Stickman for us directing. Uh, and we're again working with Triggerfish uh, Animation Studios in, in Cape Town. But well, there you go. Quite a bevy of animated treats for young and old and uh, everyone in between this holiday season. And uh, very glad to be able to shed some light on it. This has been absolutely lovely. It's been like a squiggly office Christmas party, hasn't it? All three of us together. Very, a very chaste office party. Yeah, well, you know. As anyone who knows us in real life knows, we're very understated people. (laughs) We don't cut loose at all. Steve is photocopying his ass as we speak. (laughs) Well, you did ask for a copy. 
And I'm in a bath of eggnog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel all warm and Christmassy inside. I'm not sure if that's mince pie indigestion, but I'm ready for these these shorts that are on over Christmas. And if you're in a Christmassy mood, any time between now and the 14th of January, you can get yourself down to Bournemouth, uh, to the gallery at the Arts University Bournemouth, to visit uh, an exhibition that I uh, curated called Reanimating the Snowman, uh, which has original animation production material, cells, drawings, everything from the production uh, of the snowman and the snow dog. And we were even lucky enough to get hold of some original cells, uh, storyboard material, etc., from the snowman. So it's a great kind of telling uh, of that tale uh, and a look at the, the artistry that goes uh, into the making of those films from TVC uh, and from Lupus Films. So that's Reanimating the Snowman. It's a free exhibition at the gallery at the Arts University Bournemouth, and that's going on until the 14th of January 2017. Also early on in January, my film Clean and Throw will get what may be its final screenings at the London Short Film Festival, I'm very happy to say. Schedules permitting, I'll be there for it. And if you're so inclined, you can come check it out on Tuesday, January 10th at the Moth Club for the 7pm screening WTF Outside the Box. It's also part of the New Shorts Animation Selection on Friday, January 13th, 8.30pm at the ICA. And that's also a great opportunity to catch the film Jono's Dead, which we talked about earlier, uh, as well as some other great work by Kim Nochi, Astrid Goldsmith, and Peter Vax, among others. So for more info, including venue location and how to book, visit shortfilms.org.uk. In the more immediate future, however, any German listeners who may be near or in Berlin can see an older film of mine called The Naughty List, on Saturday, December 24th, at the Weihnachts Film Festival. And you can check it out as part of their Snowflake Shorts screening at 6.30pm at the Kino Movimento. More info for that one at weihnachtsfilmfestival.de. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Laura is at L.B. Cowley. Squiggly is at Squiggly, and we're on Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. Also Instagram at Squiggly Animation. And the website itself is Squiggly.com and or Squiggly.co.uk. Hope you all have a lovely time with you and yours. And I guess we'll see you in the new year. I think we might do another new year's special but uh, i think the next actual podcast podcast won't be until january so until then happy holidays